at Miss Laura. She's at the door saying, walk, walk. Eric, walk. Set an example, bro. I love Eric Henderson. He can sing John Legend better than John Legend. And I'm serious about this. I mean, he really, see, some, you're clapping. Some of you know this. He's amazing. I want to say welcome to Fondren Church. I want to say uh, preachers can do this. I want to say happy birthday to my youngest son. Give it up for Wesley Green today. Ten years old. Do we do that for all the kids at Fondren Church? No, but the preachers, yes. My oldest, our oldest was born out uh, in Miami, our middle child born in San Diego, and Wesley was the only one born in Mississippi, right here in Fondren at St. Dominic's. We love the guy. He's the only, only child we've had that said mama uh, in his younger days, but we're grateful for him. So y'all applaud, hug him, love him. Just go give him some money. Let's get him through college, okay? Let's get that burden off my back. So grateful. We're grateful for Topher Brown. You know, we don't have all the sound, audio, and visual that we want in this room now. You all know that. But uh, isn't Topher awesome leading us and Scarlett? And, and today, debuting as a young man with red shoes named Patrick Yoho. How great is that? Patrick is from Oregon, up in the Pacific Northwest. Patrick, your mama's here today, is that right? She is. Welcome, Mama from Oregon. We love the Pacific Northwest. Thank you. Same climate, right? Same topography. It's all good. We love your son. He's moving. From Jackson, he's been here with uh, Teach for America. He's been working at Murrah High School, had a ministry there, not just teaching the kids, but ministering to them. Our church has come alongside him at times to help him. He's going to be moving to Clarksdale for a new teaching assignment, a new ministry there. And Topher, let's get him back to Fonder. What, every couple of weeks we'll pay for his gas and that sort of thing. But awesome stuff. Hey, we're in a series. Some of you know we're in a series called Simplify. Just for a few weeks, we're, we're asking the question, how can we expunge three common words from our vocabulary? Oftentimes we say, I'm overwhelmed, I'm overburdened, I'm worn out. What would your life and mine look like if, if those feelings were less paramount, less prevalent in our lives? We, week one, we looked at this idea of filling our emotional bucket. Uh, in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. His, his burden is, is light, his yoke is easy. And Jesus wants us, he wants us to have gladness, to find gladness in his love for us. And we challenge you to think about the, enjoying the joy of the Lord, having joy in him, and having joy in the gifts that he gives. It's dangerous for you and I to live depleted. No one wins. Our worship is not all that it should be. Our fellowship isn't. Uh, our ministry, our families, nothing works the way it should be when we're dangerously low on fumes, when we're running on empty. Um, and the week after that, week two, we looked at controlling your calendar. We put a, a, a few passages up on the, on the screen, namely Ephesians chapter 5, verses uh, 16 through 18, about redeeming the time because the days are evil, walking in wisdom. We looked at that idea. What would it look like if God controlled your calendar? I said that day, if you were here, I said uh, some of you probably want something deeper, more meaty when you come to church. But what could be more meaningful than you and I thoughtfully praying over our schedule and how we use our time? Moses in Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. And in week three, last week was week three, and and we joined 4.3 billion, not here, but 4.3 billion people uh, around the world as we celebrated Easter and our risen Savior. Today, I want to talk to you about something that I think is really going to challenge you. And I think it'll challenge everybody in here. And I think it'll challenge you uh, in different ways. And let me say this. Oftentimes, you will say to me, 
man, if I'm going to be involved at church or in a church or this church, I want to be challenged. I want to be challenged. You ever said that? If you hadn't emailed me or told me to my face, have you told another staff person here? Or you've said it in your small group or to somebody. If you're going to be a part of a church, then you want to be challenged. Okay, today, I'm going to test that theory. This morning, we're going to talk about our finances. Oftentimes, life is for us, we, we do feel overwhelmed and worn out and burdened down because of money. Rarely a week or two goes by where I don't talk to some of you about great debt, about possibly a gambling addiction, about a marital mess that you're in because of finances. Today, to add more good news to your day, I've got 10 points. There's going to be 10 points to this sermon. Now, I promise you, we'll move along fast, and I promise you the next sermon will be pointless, okay? So we're going to have 10 here today. Now, the first thing I want to say to you, these are 10 shouts. We're going to go, we're going to go old English on you, okay? If you've got a, a Bible from the 1500s or something. But we're going to do a lot of shouts, shouts and shouts, shouts today. Shout, chants, something. Um, the first, uh, first point I want to give you is this. Thou shalt work hard. We live in an age of entitlement. Uh, more as a parent, I see this, than as a pastor. The scripture, many times over, it correlates, listen now, in the scripture, you can take it or leave it, but in the Bible, many times over, it correlates work with money. One of the phrases the scripture uses often uh, related to money is it, it, it calls it uh, the fruit of our labors. It is a good thing to work. A woman was despondent with her husband. He had been out of work for a long time, and he didn't even want to go back to work. He was certifiably lazy. And she said to him, I'm ashamed. I don't like this, and I'm ashamed. My mom pays our rent. A sister uh, buys our food. An aunt takes care of our utilities. This ought to be better than this. I'm ashamed. And the husband said back to her, well, you ought to be. you got two uncles who don't send us a thing. In Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 19, it says this. It says, hard workers have plenty to eat, but playing around brings poverty. God desires for us to put our heart into it, to find meaningful work. How serious is it? In the New Testament, the church at Thessalonica was told that if a man doesn't work, a man ought not to eat. That it, it's really bad if a man doesn't, an able-bodied man, a man that can work, who chooses not to, that he brings great calamity in his life. Not to mention the loss of respect and the dignity. I've I told you uh, more than once that, that we are relational beings. We're created to love. Uh, isn't that our deepest need? But we can't deny that we're created uh, with, with needs to contribute, to, to work. Colossians 3, do all your work, whatever you do. Your job is, is different than mine. I'm tired of y'all looking at me out in the community and saying, y'all, Robert, you only work one day a week. Okay, stop it. But your job is different than mine. But Scripture says whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord. Moses prayed in the early part of the Scripture, God, establish the work of our hands. Have you ever prayed that? God, give me an ethic. Give me a desire to contribute to, to make a living. Paul said in Ephesians 4, let him who stole steal no more. They had, some, they had some shady people in the church. 
We need some shady people in the church, don't we? If we're gonna, if we're gonna, I'm looking at some of you. Y'all are looking down as I look out there. Some of you are looking low and to the left. We need some, we need some outcasts in our church, don't we? I think we're a healthier and a better church if we got some questionable people up in here. But Paul said to this church, they were mixing rich and poor, and they were mixing uh, shady guys into, in, into the church, and it, that, that honored God. But Paul, man, he spoke the truth. He challenged them. He heard them saying, I like to be challenged. If I'm going to stick around at Ephesus, I want to be challenged. And Paul said, let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands. You see that? God's saying, don't just not steal, but get work and work with your hands. Do something that God has made you to do. You'll find joy in that. And then do so so that you can give and contribute to other people. Do you see that beautiful progression? Value. There's value in, in hard work. The second point in our 10-point sermon. Thou shalt not compete with the Joneses. Now, spell check me on that one, Lauren. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. You got a boat? A little kayak? Maybe a little pontoon boat? You love your boat. You get out on that boat. You feel the presence of God. Your neighbor gets a boat, the mother of all boats. He gets a yacht. Suddenly, your little kayak doesn't look too good, does it? Your neighbor, they're going on vacation. Where are they going? To the French Riviera. And you're just hoping to get in your 1989 Buick Riviera and go to Tupelo or Tunic or somewhere like that, right? You, you know what I'm saying. And there is this desire within us. It's hence the popular phrase. Who are the Joneses? Well, you can study about the Hatfields and McCoys, but who are the Joneses? You're the Joneses. They live across from you. It's, it's who you compare yourself to. And we, you've heard me teach on this. Oftentimes when we compare ourselves morally, we compare ourselves to people who we think are below us. But financially, we spend too much of our time comparing ourselves to people who are above us. And let me give you the hint. I want, I want to talk to you this morning. I'm going to help you here. I'm going to give you the once and for all way to cure yourself from trying to keep up with the Joneses, from being overwhelmed and burdened down and exhausted and worn out from keeping up with the Joneses. You want to, you want to know what it is? Here it is. Declare to them you win. Just go see the Joneses and say, Joneses, you win. You win. You, want, you win the house contest. You win the boat contest. You win the car contest. You win the Christmas lights decorating contest. You, win, you can win the yard of the month every month. You win. And just wipe your hands of keeping up with the Joneses. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verse, verse 9 says this. How great is this? It is better to be satisfied with what you have than to always be wanting something else. Can I get one amen at Fondren Church this morning? Now, what do you have? If this was a small group and it's not, but if we were in a circle and we're not, we're in rows. But if you're at my house in circles and we were talking about what you had and we did a name your blessing game, what do you have? What would you say? I think we're so busy keeping up with the Joneses because we don't really see what we have. You ever read about rich people problems? You can probably Google this online, but uh, 
say this with me, okay? We're going to say together, I have rich people problems, okay? Because we're comparing ourselves with the world. Now, I know some of you are hurting today. Some of you are out of work. Some of you had some unpaid bills. But most of us, really all of us, compared to the world, we're rich. I have rich people problems. Would you say it with me? I have rich people problems. Would you say it with more gusto? I have rich people problems. Well, what are rich people problems? Rich people problems are if you stand in front of a full refrigerator or pantry and you say, I don't have anything to eat, then you have rich people problems. If you stand in a closet with plenty of shoes and clothes and you say, I don't have anything to wear, you have rich people problems. If you get one, two, heck, some of us three or four weeks of the year where you get paid but you don't work, you have rich people problems. If you complain when the city has a drought or a boiled water alert and you don't get to use the water like you want to or you don't get to use pure drinking water on your lawn, you have rich people problems. If any of your sentences begin with my gardener, my housekeeper, my butler, my airline reservations, my hotel reservations, then you have rich people problems. Do you know that many of us, check this out, Many of us work five days a week, but we get to eat seven days a week. Do you know that that's so different than the world? So very different than many parts of the world. Do you know on top of that, and we're one of them, there's really one primary breadwinner, one person in certain families that they go out and they work only five days a week. And there's two, three, four, five other people in that same household. And all of those people get to eat seven days a week because one person works five days a week. You and I, we have rich people problems. And I pray that you wrote down Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verse 9. I pray that God will use it in your life because testimony, he's using it in mine. He is. Point number three, thou shalt distinguish between wants and needs. Think of the last ball game that you've been to. Maybe you were part of the record-setting crowd Tuesday night at Trustmark Ballpark where the Bulldogs, okay, even the series with Ole Miss. But think of the last ball game that you've been to. You probably saw a man standing outside of the stadium with a sign that says what? I need tickets. Now, let me ask you, does that man need tickets or does he want tickets? You see, what is it that you need? What do you really need? Do you know that we really only have a few needs? We, we, need, we need food. We need air. We need shelter. We need some degree of clothing. Those are our, our real needs. Thou shalt learn to distinguish between, between wants and needs. Uh, one man was once asked, would you rather have 12 children or $12 million? His response, I would rather have 12 children because the man who has $12 million always wants more. Sinking in, it's kind of going to the back. There you go. It's now reached the balcony. Thank you. What are, what are your wants and what, your, what are your needs? Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, Jesus said, watch out, be careful, 
Because a man's life, it does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's a a warning label. Uh, In America, every product, everything you touch has a warning label on it. It's good comedy to read some of those warning labels. But Jesus is giving life itself a warning label. Watch out. Be careful. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Number four, thou shalt not spend impulsively. How many, are, how many of you are planners? Like you like to plan things. Raise your hand. I, I know a lot of you. Jeff Hightower certainly is. Yeah, uh, you, you planner? I mean, you've you got everything laid out. And how many of you are on the other end? You're, not, you're just kind of free as the wind. You don't plan anything. Just kind of go with life. It's jazz. It's unscripted. Bob Pennybaker, uh, visual arts at Bellhaven. He's an artist. Of course, he's going to raise his hand. Uh, some of you who are planners, right? I mean, you, you have a list, don't you? Every planner I know has a list. And on that list, you, you write down what you're going to do that day and that week. And what do you do when you're, when you're done with it? Check it off. And some of you will write, you didn't put it on your list, but you did it that day. You'll go back to your list and you'll write what you did and then you'll check it off. Can I just say that's messed up? (laughs) Write something on your list right now. Get help, okay? And then then I want you to go check that off, okay? Just write down, get get help and check that off your list, okay? We're calling names today at Fondren. But you know, planning, is a really good thing. It's a, it's a good thing. And if you're impulsive, as I am, so many ways, you can be at Walmart and you can hear that prices are falling on aisle nine. And you just think you got to go running to where the prices are falling. And Walmart is already rolling up their sleeves and rolling back the prices. And there's a yellow, smiley, happy face looking right at you. How can you not be impulsive? Even you planners, come on. But it's, it's a problem when deep in the recesses of your heart you say, I am lonely, I am sad, I am bored, I need to go shopping, I need to be made happy. Look at this passage in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 2. Why spend money on what does not satisfy? Jeremiah the prophet calls it broken cisterns. We're trying to carry things thinking that it will fill us, but it, it leaks. The next point. Thou shalt not spend more than you earn. Thou shalt not spend more than you earn. Look at Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 11. This is, if you're in finance or you know a little bit about banking, this is a, the miracle of compound interest long before it's time. Y'all, I'm telling you, God's Word, the Scripture is God's Word. It is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, for reproof. Look at that. Whoever gathers money little by little watches it grow. Now, the thing probably that you want to say, think, feel today is, well, I don't have much money. How can I watch it grow? But you know, it doesn't take much money to accumulate much money. One financial expert says that if you were over a career, a 50-year career, that if you were to not eat lunch out five days a week and you brown bagged it for your whole career, a smart person estimated that in a 50-year 
career, you would probably potentially save $112,000. Now, let me get in our business. If you have debt, and some of us do not, but if you have debt, the average American debt is this right here. The average American carries $14,500 in debt. You, some of you know this. Now, if you were to make minimum monthly payments on this, you would probably be paying $218, and that is considered at an 18% interest rate. Now, how long, I ask you, would it take to pay off $14,500 if you're paying the minimum of $218 at an 18% rate? What'd you say? Five, 30 years? 40 years. How much would you pay back making the minimum payments? Over those 40 years, you would pay back $105,000. Now you owe this, but you stretch it out 40 years. That's what you're going to pay. Now contrast that. Let's say that you didn't have debt. And let's say you took that same number and you said, I'm going to save that. And you're going to get, let's, let's play estimates and what's reasonable. Okay, I called a banker this week. Uh, let's say you played that at 12%. You've got a, an interest-bearing account. And you're saving $218 a month. And you do that. For 40 years. Anybody want to guess what you're going to have at the end of 40 years? If a giant meteor doesn't hit the earth like NASA's, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab is predicting, at the end of 40 years, you will have saved $3.6 million. Now, you ask me, if Proverbs 13, 11 is true. Is it true? Little by little, just gathering. You don't have to have a lot of money to gather a lot of money, to accumulate money over the years. Now, it'd be a beautiful experience. We're probably not going to do this because some of you wouldn't come back. But it, it could be a beautiful experience if we had the time and the bravery to let some 35 and older people come up here and just talk to the 35 and younger crowd. You know what I'm saying? I mean, 35 and older, just, we know who you are. Just start shaking your head, right? I mean, there's a, what, isn't, there, isn't there a message you want to tell? I mean, I'm just glad all three of my kids are at church today, right? Man, there's a, there's a message for everybody, but there's a, there's a real message for our younger crowd. Thou shalt be careful to, to spend, to not spend more than you earn. Point number five or six, wherever we are, where are we? Six, thou shalt be cautious about debt. Now, there's some confusion on this in the church. There ought not to be, but a lot of times we read or listen on the radio to certain people and they're, they're, they could be highly skilled and very wise. But let me, let me just say to you that the Bible never prohibits debt. 
I don't know if you believe that, but the Bible never prohibits debt. In fact, in, in our world today, a very few of us would be able to uh, launch a business or, or buy a home or get an education if it wasn't for some smart degree of debt. Every church I know, y'all, I've lived all around the country, served in various places. Every church I know that's dynamic, that's making a significant impact, has at one time or another leveraged debt to advance the kingdom, to do good. Debt can be harnessed for kingdom's work. The trouble comes when you and I, we choose the wrong kind of debt. What is the wrong kind of debt? The wrong kind of debt is borrowing money to pay for things that depreciate. You all know this passage. In fact, you, uh, sometimes you think this is the verse that says absolutely no debt. And I realize opinions can vary as we interpret Scripture and look at life. But Proverbs 22, the famous passage, says this. Say it in your best Dave Ramsey voice. The borrower is servant to the lender. The better word there is slave. I should have picked that version. Uh, the, the, that person owns you. And when you invest in something that depreciates, like a car or clothing or electronics or vacations, and you borrow to pay on that, you accumulate that kind of debt, then you can be in trouble. It often leads to trouble. Now, you know the preacher is going to go to this one. The next point. Thou shalt not make a major decision without wise counsel. Here's where we are in life. We have decided, and by the way, I've decided, and this has been beautiful, part of the beautiful experience of the last three years for, for me and for our family. You guys are a part of this. I say this almost uh, on the verge of tears, but we have learned that we need help. I have learned that I need advice. I have learned that I need allies. And some of you are for that, or you are that for us. And I'm so grateful. But we have made a commitment to each other that we will not make a major purchase as a couple, as a family, without going to someone who, listen, who's further down the road. Now, realtors, I love realtors, but realtors, they always want you to buy the house, right? They always think you can afford it. The person selling the car always thinks you can buy the car. The salesperson always thinks. The banker always, these people think, I'm not saying go, you know, and, and you do what I do. Realtors are great. Bankers are great. Car salesmen sometimes are great. Uh, you, you know, you, you want advice from people who know what they're doing. And those good people will in many ways give you expertise. But find somebody, if it's a major purchase, find someone further down the road than you who is godly. And here's what you have to do, y'all. We, we, we've done this, we're going to start doing this because we're buying vacation homes all around the world. But we, we sit down with someone and we say, Susan wants a disclaimer, y'all know I'm kidding. We sit down with somebody and we say, here's what we got. Now, how painful is that? It hurts a little bit, doesn't it? Just to say, this is what we make, this is what we have right here. This is what we're working with, this is what we're thinking, this is how much this costs. Here's how, you know, how do we get there? What do you think? Now, I have found from my own heart and maybe thinking about your life. There's two reasons we don't. Let, by the way, let me put that passage up, Jay, Proverbs chapter 20. It says, plans are established by wise counsel, by wise guidance. Wage war, that word should be. You can wage what, I guess, but wage war. War is a big deal, isn't it? If you're going to war, 
You say, hey, can we do this? What's the cost? Read Luke chapter 14. If a man goes to battle, if he builds a tower or goes into war, he's got to count the cost. You've got to do a, a cost-benefit analysis. Man, plans are what? What are they? The scripture says they're established by wise counsel. Now, when we go to someone, we often don't because we got to do, for two reasons. Number one, we got to tell somebody all about our business, and that's uncomfortable. Secondly, we don't go to people for their advice because, you ready? Because we don't want to receive what they're going to tell us. Because a lot of times, older, wiser people who've been further down the road, they may tell you something crazy like, wait before you take this vacation or buy this house or get that boat or add on. They may tell you something like that, and you don't want to hear that. So why go to them? Point number eight. Thou shalt not ruin your kids with money. I got no verse on that. I'm just telling you, don't ruin your kids with money. Number nine, thou shalt honor God first. You want to be challenged? I'm going to test this theory. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Malachi. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me, but you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if, it will not, if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it. Malachi chapter 3. Now, how many of you think, that's a little Old Testament for me? Crops and vats and all that stuff. And that cursing thing, that's... Uh, I want to go Thomas Jefferson and just take that out of the Scripture. You want to do that? Don't you want to do that? God is saying, test me. Now, what is that word, tithe? I would venture to say that everybody in the room, certainly every adult, has an idea of what it is, but I continue to be surprised at how many misnomers, misconceptions about the tithe. What is the tithe? The word literally means one-tenth, or it means 10%. Now listen, that is a, it's mathematically precise. Sometimes people will say to me, hey, I tithe 3% or I tithe 5%. And I will say back to them, or at least I'll think it, well, you don't tithe 3%, you don't tithe 5%. I don't know your business financially. You may give a 3% offering or a 5% offering, but a tithe is mathematically precise. It is 10%. Anyway, you chop it up. Now, it's easy for some of us to say, um, that's Old Testament. I'm in the New Testament period of grace when it comes to the tithe. You ever thought that way? Have you ever felt that way? You ever used that to justify maybe any disobedience in your life? Let me address that. Let's talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. I've studied them both. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Now, the tithe was presented before the law, it was contained in the law, 
and it was set up and established to continue after the law, according to Jesus and the apostles. Jesus said in Matthew 23, when you do tithe, he could have said, don't do that anymore. That's Old Testament. He didn't say that. He said, when you give your tithes. Now, let me say something this morning. It's uh, very common to think. And let me say, if you're not a Christ follower, man, check out. Just look at the ceiling tiles. Check out your phone just for a few minutes, okay? But this is for the follower of Jesus. Because it's easy for a lot of us to come in here or some other place. And, man, we raise our hands. We say, I surrender all. We sing that Tomlin song. Uh, we raise our white flag. I, I surrender. I, I raise the white flag. God, you're not getting the tithe. But, man, we just we surrender it all to you. And it's easy to say that the church is all about money. Ever, ever heard that? Ever thought that? You know I have. And let me just say to some of you, I am sorry on behalf of the church. And I am sorry that for some of you, your trust has been breached. I read this week alone about a pastor in Texas raising money within his church for new blades on his helicopter. An evangelist in Michigan raising money for his own private plane. A big-time preacher. I read one of his books a couple of weeks ago. In North Carolina, they're building a $3.4 million house for him and his family. None of the church knew about it. Then they began to ask questions, and there's no local elder body governing him. And I want to meet you where you are. It's easy to think that the church is all about money. Now, for a moment... Can I speak candidly to you? Will you give me permission to speak candidly? If you don't, give me permission. I'll speak endlessly, okay? Can I speak candidly for a moment? When people say the church is all about money, it stirs something in me. It's just close. We can't call it anger, but it's just close to this discontent. Because I want to say to people, most people who come to church... When the offering plate is passed or they have an opportunity to give online, they give nothing. Some of them love the church. Some of them are being benefited by the church to come and to worship, to meet people, to get in a group, to find friendship. We've got people in this church, they're meeting their mate at this church. Two couples last weekend got engaged. Stick around. But, you know, it's easy for us to to say the church is all about money, but most people don't give. They may say, I love it, but they don't give anything. And you know what we do in response to that? You know what we do? Nothing. We don't send a collection agency to your house. We don't send you a monthly invoice itemizing the way that you have benefited from our church. We do nothing. Now, what if you were to go to a business and you were to walk in, even if your friend owns the business, and you were to benefit from some things in there, and you like it, and you were to take it out and walk out because you don't want to give, what would happen to you? Jail. Eventually. Depends on how fast you drive and what turns you take, right? But is the church all about money? And I want to say to you that in our community, just a couple of months ago, a young lady, her house burned down. And our church gave her items. Some of you, a couple of our small groups, collected things to give to her. And our church wrote a check to help her a little bit for $2,500. She doesn't go to this church. She probably never would come to this church. 
She's been burned by church. No, no pun intended. She's been burned by church before, but she needs people's help. And we don't, we don't turn anybody away. We don't look and say, are we going to the hospital today? Are we ministering to people? Are we going to take your kids and love on them and teach them about Jesus? We don't turn anybody away. This church, since its very beginning, we take college students to passion so that they can learn to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with their God, to be involved in a cause greater than themselves, and they don't pay anything. We, we pay their way. So I get a little angry when people say church is all about money or church is just like a business. Can anybody feel me when I'm talking like this? The churches, there are business principles and business practices, but we operate not with perfection, but we operate much differently than businesses around us. Family struggling with cancer. We were made aware that they were struggling with not just a health issue, but with financial issues. Fondren Church family just got this this week. We are so humbled by the gift you made to our family to help us pay for our medical bills. Your generosity truly leaves us at a loss for words. The outpouring of support and love, the deep and abiding kind and heartfelt prayers have been invaluable as we daily fight this battle. I can't read it all. But our church gave thousands of dollars to help this family last week. Is the church all about money? Do we just sit down and take it? I'm probably being too combative, but I told you I was a little angry. Last point. Thou shalt understand what rich really means. And as I close, let me say this. Let me back up a little bit because I want to I want to bring some grace to this as we as we talk. But when we when we look at a tithe, and for some of you, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you because this is not about me and you. This is not about me seeing what you give or knowing what you give or treating anybody any different. College presidents, I've observed, they spend most of their time with wealthy people so they can raise money for their university. And if you follow me and a couple of our other staff around, we only have a few, but we probably spend our time mostly with people that can't really give any money to our church. And when I talk about what I'm talking about, I hope you hear my heart today because this is not something I want from you. This is something I want for you. And let me say this. Let's say real quick that uh, this person is, um, is a non-faith person. Now, they're a believer but they don't buy what the scripture teaches. But they're a human being, good person, and they believe that the best way to get from A to B is how most people believe they need 100%. Life is hard, right? I mean, you need your money. It's your money. It's your money. And to get from A to B to live your life, you need 100%. Not a person that doesn't have faith in what God says. Now, this person right here, is what I would call faith-filled. And this person, at some point in their life, said, from, to get to 
A to B. I need 90. Because tithing requires faith, doesn't it? But to get from A to B, this person says 90%. But this person would have a story. In fact, let me be honest with you. This person, this is where the scripture jumps into real life because God says, test me and see if it's true. And I know people who live this way. They're very imperfect people. Uh, but they're faith-filled and they're believing God and they have for some time and they will go to see. There's, a, there's a, an added dimension to their life. There's, a, there's another level. There's, they have C stories. It, if I had room to write and I had halfway decent handwriting, I would write blessing and favor. I would write serendipity and surprise. Beautiful little things that God does when you say, I can believe you. Now, let me say this. Both people think the other person is an idiot, right? Both people think the other person. Now, this person looks at this person and says, you're an idiot. You drank the Kool-Aid. You've been listening to the preacher, and he wants more people in the pews, and he wants blades for his helicopter, right? You've been drinking the Kool-Aid. This is, this is my money. And this person, of course, is nicer than this person, but he looks over at this person, and he says, you idiot, nicer tone. And he says, you are missing out. You are missing out. It, it looks like pure math, right? Because a hundred is better than 90, right? If you give me a hundred dollars or $90, I'm, I, know I want the hundred. There are times when we really need the hundred, but this person says, you know what? I'm going to believe God and everybody I know, if they're faithful over time, they will have sea stories, and we got them, don't we? Raise, I mean, just nod your head. If you look at my wife, we have some sea stories of God's amazing blessing in our lives. Now, I want to ask you this morning, this is a want-to question. Which idiot do you want to be? I want to be this one. I want to be this one. And if you picture life as a ladder, or what I'm taught this morning as a ladder, on the bottom of the ladder, write first time. The first rung of the ladder is first time. You've never given before. Then above that, the next step on the ladder, you can write the word occasional. You've given in a month or two or three, you're going to give something again. You're an occasional giver. And then write the word above that, write the word intentional. You're not just sporadically, sparingly, spontaneously giving, but there's a little more intention about it. You're trying, you're trying this week to give the tithe or some percentage, but it just, it's just not going to add up. You're just not going to trust. You're just gonna, not, not going to do it, but you, you're giving intentionally. And above that on the ladder is the word tithe. You are a tither. Above that on the ladder, write the word extravagant. Because you remember what I was talking about earlier about the Old Testament and the New Testament? And the Old Testament was like, ah, that's, that's Old Testament stuff. Well, here's what, here's what the New Testament does every single time. The New Testament raises the bar on the Old Testament. When they said in the Old Testament, do not murder, Jesus said, don't even have hate in your heart. In the Old Testament, it says, do not commit adultery. Jesus raised it a notch, and he said, don't even have lust in your heart. When the Old Testament says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Jesus says, love your enemies and bless those, pray for those who persecute you. So if you say, I'm kind of Old Testament on this thing, then I would say, great, because you give more than 10%. And you are in that extravagant category. I'll shut up. Thou shall understand 
what rich really means. I've been in, in ministry for 27 years. And in those 27 years, I have, I've been with people in the hospital or in hospice care. In the final days, final hours, in a few cases, the final breaths. And I can tell you this morning that everybody on their deathbed, that nobody rather talks about their net worth or petty little things or material things. No, I've never, ever heard it once. But people talk about two things. They talk about God. Probably not just because the preacher's in the room. They talk about God for the, because they're, they're just a few gasp of breath away from meeting Him. And they talk about their family. They, they talk about their friends because that's what matters the most. Wouldn't you agree? And my question to you this morning is if that's what really matters at the end, why don't we Think more about it in the middle. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the challenge you've brought in my own life and more so many, so many, so many times in so many ways, more than I care to confess. I have sought my own way and done my own math and turned away from what your scripture teaches. I've been selected. I've had my hands raised in a worship service, but I'm not willing to trust you with certain areas. Lord, I pray a very specific prayer today. We've been challenged. And Lord, I pray you lift any condemnation that you would invite in this room into hearts and minds, that you would invite an invitation from your word for us to, to prayerfully consider another step. Maybe a first-time thing or an occasional or an intentional or, or to just jump right in, to cannonball in, to being obedient to what you said. Lord, I thank you for the sea stories, for the times of favor and blessing and the serendipity, the surprises, the things that you've done in my own life and the lives of some people here because we've taken you, we've tested you to see that your word is true, that it is good. Lord, I pray you keep us away from being, as the scripture says, fond of sordid gain and all about the money. But Lord, I can't pastor your people. I can't lead a church without talking about this more because Jesus, you talked about it so very often. Lord, I thank you that you're working in our hearts. I pray that you would continue to. I pray that each life would just take a, a closer step toward receiving your generosity and in turn being a generous person. Lord, I pray that Lord, you would remove maybe any awkwardness in this moment, that no one would leave here today thinking I am trying to get something from them. Lord, your heart today and your word is to do something for us. And we're better people when we let go of greed. We're, we're better people when we let your math be the right math. Move us forward, Lord, on the continuum of faith and obedience and generosity. Lord, I pray that we would walk in a way that honors you. And Lord, for the hurting, for the overwhelmed, the worn out, the exhausted. Lord, I pray that, Lord, as our 
as we walk up the ladders, as, as one more person walks higher up the ladders, you grow us as a, as, as a body, Lord, that we can even meet more needs. And I just can't turn away from the book of Acts. It tells us that uh, they didn't let people suffer under the weight of unmet needs. And I pray, God, that you would continue to do that in our midst. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Church, would you stand? And we're going to close our service today by observing communion. We have made it a practice in the two and a half, almost three years that we've been a church family to to finish out uh, each month, to come around the table to the elements. And I'm going to ask that our leaders, if they would, make their way now to, to take the elements. As I understand it from our team, that we are these leaders are going to lead us in having probably six different stations uh, around the room. That's places for everybody in our room. To uh, you guys in the balcony, we love you. Uh, y'all may need to come down for this. But just we have, I think, room for everybody and a station for everybody to to receive these elements. And church, this is, this represents, this juice represents Christ's blood. This, this bread represents Christ's body, the blood shed for you, the body broken for you. Each of our, our leaders, as they administer the elements, they will probably say that very thing to you as you approach them. This is Christ's body. This is Christ's blood. It, it, it's, it's a symbolism. But Jesus said, do this so that we would be made mindful that our stance before him is we're in rags, we're, we're in poverty, that we are morally bankrupt and that we need our Savior. And we remember him today in worship. Now, let me, because there's new people here, let me, remind, let me instruct you and remind some others that when you approach the elements, there's going to be someone in the aisle to, to kind of point you which direction to take. Follow the person in front of you. If you're in the middle aisle, you're okay. Just follow somebody. If you're on the edge, uh, you may be in trouble. But uh, we're, we're going to give you instructions as you approach the elements. Take the corner of that bread and uh, approach the cup. And just dip that corner of, of bread into the cup, not your finger. Somebody's going to be uh, monitoring this. But just dip that, that bread into the cup. And you may want to say an amen or something as you acknowledge just uh, what you're doing. Communion is for every believer. And for every believer who, who calls on the name of Jesus, uh, it's, it's for you. God, receive our worship as we take the elements, uh, as we worship you, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to remember you. You, who Scripture says, uh, who are rich, you became poor so that we might experience great riches in Christ, so that we may have everything that we need for life and godliness. We are so grateful for that, Lord. Thank you for the great sacrifice. In fact, without it, without remembering your living sacrifice, your death, your resurrection, uh, what we talked about today is pretty silly. But it forms the framework for all of this. And for that, we are grateful. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.